Hello, and welcome to Cover to Credits, the bi-weekly podcast where we discuss books and their movie adaptations. I'm Ian George. And I'm Adina Hilton. In this episode, we'll be discussing Jaws. Jaws was written by Peter Benchley and was published in 1974. And the film adaptation was directed by Steven Spielberg and came out in 1975. It just keeps getting faster, right? Forever. Yes, continuously. This episode was actually a recommendation from one of our listeners, Angie. Yes, and she wrote us a little uh, blurb on her thoughts on the book and the movie, and we'll read a portion of that at the end. Yeah, yeah, so it was uh, a great recommendation. I'm yeah. so glad we got to read this one <laughs> and, of course, revisit the movie. The, the oh, movie's yeah. a classic, and it, it's just such a, um, I mean, so first of all, this was the second movie that Steven Spielberg directed, theatrical film. Wow. Uh, he did some TV stuff, some TV movies and things like that, but seventh theatrical, second theatrical movie. And he was 27 wow. when he directed this. Damn. Just a baby. Wow. And I, I won't get too much into um, talking about the production of it because a lot of it has been well documented in books like uh, Jaws Log. There are several uh, hour plus long uh, featurettes on YouTube you can watch that's all about the production. But mm-hmm. we can share some on Patreon if yes. there's some that are particularly good. Yeah, we'll post some of them on Patreon. But suffice it to say that production was hell on this movie, <laughs> uh, namely just filming out at sea, which was something that had never really been done before. Really? Yeah, because it was always on studio lots. If you were in the ocean, in an ocean setting, uh, it was in like a contained environment, like mm-hmm. in, a, in a on a water tank, basically. Uh, so filming out on the ocean was like very different and just tons of problems. And it went from like it was supposed to be like a two month shoot. Yeah. And it went like into eight months. Oh, my God. Yeah, it went on super long (laughs) uh so there's just a lot of like interesting myth and lore behind this movie yeah and basically all the cast like they were like we thought it was going to be a disaster oh my gosh because they were like it was just so improvised like on the day of and just it felt like you never knew what was going on that like (laughs) no one knew what was going on and so they just thought it was going to be a complete fiasco yeah so just it's so funny to hear that said about this movie because the movie feels so like well crafted yeah exactly it feels intentional it does absolutely like everything seems like it was like genius how they did this or that and half the time it was like no we had to do it that way (laughs) well i have heard that like they had problems with the shark and that the shark wasn't working shark problems were probably the biggest (laughs) thing they encountered mechanical issues with the shark Mm -hmm. uh but yeah so and obviously when the movie came out it just stunned people yeah it was like the highest grossing movie at the time until the first Star Wars movie came out uh, two years later. But this movie basically invented the summer blockbuster. It did. Yeah. And it actually is weirdly like given Steven Spielberg, like not a bad name, but some people, uh, I don't think maybe as much now, but people are like, he's ruining the film industry by, by creating these mindless summer blockbusters. And (laughs) like, yeah, a lot of people like, did not like Steven Spielberg huh. for the types of movies that he was making. Interesting. Yeah, it's so, I don't know, it's wild, because I'm like, it's not mindless, but maybe by some people's, 
opinions of the time. I don't know. Interesting. It's hard to say, but. Yeah. Also worth mentioning, the book was also very successful. Yes, it did do really well, uh, specifically in paperback. And I think it has that like kind of paperback genre um, popularity where it was very like action-y. There were a lot of like kind of mysterious plots in it. Um, So yeah, it did do really well. But I think over time, whereas the movie Jaws has definitely stayed in the public consciousness and has continued to be a movie that people reference and talk about, the book has completely faded into obscurity. And in fact, I did not know that it was a book at all until we got this request. Yeah, I one of the things I've heard this said before, I think, but someone has said like or I saw it online. They're like, if you think the book is always better than the movie, you clearly haven't read Jaws, (laughs) (laughs) which is no reflection of my own opinion necessarily. Mm -hmm. And honestly, no matter, you know, we've done way worse adaptations. Like, oh, yeah. Children of Men. Oh, my God. My God, that book yeah. was atrocious. Yes. But clearly, it kind of reflects how people view the book compared to the movie mm-hmm. nowadays. So, yeah. Uh, but now let's jump into it. Yes. Let's talk about the town setting. Um, in the movie, the town of Amity is on an island. Yeah, They're literally it, in an island off, like off, kind of like Nantucket area, I think. In yeah, like that area. Uh-huh. Uh huh. Yeah, it's just its own. It's like I think called Amity Island, like yeah. not just the town, but I think the island itself. Mm-hmm. And so you have like barges and ships constantly like bringing people onto the island and like transporting people around. Yeah. The book, however, actually Amity is a town on Long Island. Yeah. And so it's just like another beach town, basically. Yeah. Yeah. So it's just kind of essentially the town thrives on its summer uh, tourists coming Mm -hmm. and like, you know, the actual population that lives there year round is very small. Which is interesting because I've read other books with the same premise. Yeah. And this is something I think in that part of the world is happens a lot because in the New England, New York area, like you have very beautiful and hot mm-hmm. summers, but then you have very cold winters. Yeah. So it's definitely like the time of year where people come and visit, they take their vacations there and then like don't come back. So th- there's this interesting idea, which I liked in both the book and the movie of the summer people versus like the Islanders or the winter people. Yeah. And the book really pushes kind of the class Of it, too, because a lot of the people who visit are richer, well off. Mm -hmm. They like rent houses for the summer or even own summer homes there. Yeah. And so there's a clear divide between and like a lot of the people that live there uh, in the book, they talk about how like if they they may go on uh, welfare or food stamps or, you know, government assistance during the winter. Yeah. Because they rely on that money they make in the summer to carry over. Mm -hmm. So if the summer isn't great or their business didn't do great you know, they may struggle through the winter or they may have to leave and go do jobs elsewhere. So uh, it it is this really interesting economy. Yes. And I think it works so well in this story because it creates like really good risks and dilemmas. And tension between like making these decisions that can affect not only like the people in the summer, but what might happen in the wintertime as well. Yeah. And, you know, the fact that this shark is... uh, you know, tormenting this town in this area. It's like, you know, if people aren't coming here during the summer, like everyone in the town is going to suffer and the town may 
not even be here in a year, you know, if it does poorly enough. Mm -hmm. So like it really has, it gives it tangible stakes in this story, which I really enjoy. Yeah. It's definitely more of a theme in the book, like very hopped on in the book. It is touched on in the movie though. Mm -hmm. So should we talk about the first incident? Victim numero uno. Just a lady trying to have a good time in the water. (laughs) How dare she? I know. Uh, it's like the shark knew in the book that she had just fucked. And yeah. he was like, I have to punish you. <laughs> it's like, I'm really judging your morals right now. Yeah. <laughs> Essentially, uh, this guy and this gal are out on a beach. In the movie, they're from like a bonfire party. Yeah. And in the book, they're like staying in a house on the beach. Mm-hmm. But they go out. Uh, the woman strips down to nothing and is like, let's go swimming. And the guy is like. Yeah, I'm just, um, I'll catch up with you. I'm just going to be here. In the book, they actually do fuck, and then he just falls asleep after sex. <laughs> well, you know, the stereotypical male thing. And then she goes for a swim and gets killed, and he wakes up on the beach later. In the movie, they don't even get to fuck. So they, they did not get to have sex before she died. No, they didn't bang. <laughs> the classic covered they credits bang? qualifier, did they bang? In they the did movie, not they did not. They, yeah. yeah, in the movie, they did not get to. <laughs> Uh, it's so interesting because right off the bat, obviously one of the most kind of like well-known things and one of the biggest things that the Jaws movie did for kind of the horror franchise was the idea of concealing yes. the killer mm-hmm. and leaving more to the imagination. Yes. And building suspense in other ways. Yes. That isn't visual. I mean, you talk about the soundtrack. And how iconic that was and how um, it really puts you in that space and, you know, creating tension in other ways. I love in the movie at this point, the underwater shots. Oh, yeah. And you can see her swimming. Um, I thought this was very unsettling. It was. And this goes back to the mechanical issues with the shark where... They just never could get it to do what it wanted to. It was constantly breaking down. Mm -hmm. And so this forced them to come up with alternative ways of creating the presence of the shark. Yeah. So this entire attack on the woman, you never see the shark. No. And when you see it, when you see it, quote unquote, approaching, it's just the camera. Yeah. So they had to come up with all these different ways of representing the shark. Mm-hmm. And this created the sense of like concealing it and like making it more mysterious and scary. Yeah. And, like, really just revolutionized the way we think of, like, horror movies and, like, Mm -hmm. movie monsters and stuff. Yeah. But it was all due to, like, technicalities and necessity. Yeah. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And so it's interesting because the book immediately differentiates itself so much because you're actually, like, in the perspective of the shark. Yes. Right off the bat. Mm -hmm. Kind of sensing the woman in the water or, like, this presence and how the shark is just kind of, like... Not mindless, but it's just a creature of its only drive is to feed yes. and to eat. And it senses passionless. You yeah. Know? It has no reason for anything. It's no. just doing its job, basically. I feel like these passages where we're in the mind of the shark kind of reminded me of when we were reading Jurassic Park. Mm. Um, and I don't know if Michael Crichton, because I think Jurassic Park was written after this book. I think so, yeah. Um, may have been you know they just might be writing in a similar style one doesn't have to influence the other but i thought there was an interesting parallel because michael crichton does does this a lot in jurassic park where you're kind of like in the perspective of a dinosaur and it's very like oh and then they just like 
crushed a human or like <laughs> ate its like insides. And it, yeah. it's very just like, yep. It's very visceral. It's very yeah. gross and like very graphic. Yeah. Whereas the movie is like, we don't really show you like. Yeah. And the way they do it is so like she's getting like dragged through the water, being submerged and she's like screaming for help. And it's yeah. like, it's really terrifying. Oh, yeah. Like it's still genuinely. And I think it goes back to not seeing it. Yes. You know what I mean? That's why it still holds up today. And two, it's such a like primal thing too, mm-hmm. like being in the water and not knowing what's beneath you. I think is such a very yeah. human basic fear. Uh-huh. Um, so I think it wouldn't necessarily work in all cases, but I think um, the hiding of the shark it does kind of go back to this basic fear that everyone has in the water. Like, what was that? What did I feel on my foot? Like, oh God. (laughs) Well, and people said too with Jaws was that like the monster of the movie is a real thing. Yeah. It's not some like unknown like creature or something science fiction. Yeah. It's a shark and it may not act like a normal shark and it may be exaggerated, but it's a fucking shark. But theoretically, this could possibly happen. Yeah. Possibly. <laughs> <laughs> We're not saying. Don't go in the water. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, but yeah, so she is killed and goes missing. And this is when Brody. Chief the, Brody. Chief Brody, the main character and protagonist of the story, comes into play. Mm-hmm. They are very different in the book and the movie. Yeah, quite a bit. In the book... Brody is um, a winter people person, which means... (laughs) A winter people person. You know, a winter people person, Um, which means he grew up in the town. Um, He lives there all year round, um, is kind of like a lower socioeconomic status, um, takes his job seriously. He's married to a woman named Ellen who used to be a summer people person and now is a winter people person because she married down. Yes. (laughs) She married from the summer into the winter, possibly like Persephone marrying Hades and descending into the underworld. Whoa, yeah. Now we're really getting some deep... symbolism. Yeah, mythological origins. I made that up. There's no allusions to that in the book at all. But um, this is kind of like a theme in the book is the fact that Ellen feels like she married down and is kind of unsatisfied with her life. And this becomes like a huge, huge plot point in this book. Yeah, yeah. It's really kind of thematically one of the main focal points of the of the story and what it's talking about. The movie differs in that Brody is actually totally new to being the chief of police on this island. Yeah. And it's talked that this is his first summer mm-hmm. uh, being the chief of police there. And so, you know, it's kind of more, he's more the fish out of water yeah. in this situation. And so that kind of gives him this like more of a, uh, not underdog situation, but like he's more out of his depth. Yes. Out of his element. Mm-hmm. Easily uh, swayed, which makes sense later when, the townspeople are trying to convince him to like keep the beaches open that he might like cave to them because he is new. Um, we find out that he and his family moved from New York City because he felt like it wasn't a safe environment to have kids there. And then, of course, they moved to an island where a shark is trying to eat everyone. And we also find out that uh, Chief Brody in the movie is afraid of the water, which I think is a really interesting angle on his character. Question, did we... Was there any talk about that in the book? About no, him? No. Because at the very end, it 
mentioned something about like a fear of his like drowning mm. yeah it Only does kind of brief- like ca- casually mention it but maybe it's just like Okay. Everyone's sort of afraid of drowning. Like, I, I, guess. I think everyone is afraid to drown. I think it's pretty fair to say that that's yeah. a fear of everyone's. But I remember when it mentioned that, because I had thought that was a difference between the book and movie, was this yeah. fear of the water. Mm-hmm. Uh, but then when it mentioned it near the end of the book, I was like, oh, maybe it did talk about that and I just forgot. It didn't. Okay. Okay. Because we t- sometimes get mixed up, or at oh, least yeah. I do. I but- do too. <laughs> <laughs> and also in the book, he has three kids, three boys who yeah. are mentioned like at some <laughs> like point, <twice. laughs> like partway through the story. He's like, yeah, the boys were watching TV. And I'm like, what? What you boys? Have children? You have children? <laughs> uh, same with a cat later on. But yeah. So, yeah, he is called about this missing girl. He goes and he goes with uh, one of his deputies named Hendrix. Mm-hmm. They patrol the beach where they find the remains of the young woman. Yes. And they quickly determine there is a shark and it was a shark that killed her. And now what the fuck do we do about this? Yeah, kind of right away, uh, Brody wants to close the beaches. Mm-hmm. And it kind of goes the same way in the book and in the movie. It's a little bit different. But basically, the mayor and the newspaper person in the book convince Brody that they can't do it. It's going to cause a panic. It was probably an isolated incident. You know, don't worry about mm-hmm. it. We're not going to close it. In a, in the movie, there's a scene where he's literally trying to, like, go close the beaches. And then all these, like, the mayor, the council uh, folks <laughs> as well come in and they almost ambush him and they, like, talk him down out of it as well. Yeah, yeah. And essentially, the coroner suddenly decides, well, a propeller could have also killed her. So we don't technically know what killed her. So let's just open the beaches up. And right here, I want to talk a little bit about the cinematography. Yeah. Because there's a really great video. And I I don't think I ever would have noticed Steven Spielberg's cinematography. It wasn't for a great video that I will uh, put on our Patreon. I think it's from Every Frame of Painting, Mm -hmm. I believe, if I'm remembering right. But it's about the Steven Spielberg one Hmm. Which means, like, a scene t- sh- in one shot. Yeah. And how Steven Spielberg does that quite a bit, actually, but he does it much more subtly. And why I'm talking about that here is that there's a scene where they are on a barge across the water. Yeah. To the mainland. And the camera is still the entire time. And this is where the mayor and the councilmen are pressuring uh, Brody to open the beaches back up. But it's a scene in entirely one shot. And what's cool is that you don't really notice because as the barge moves, the background is changing constantly. And then the blocking of the characters, they'll be like more it's more of a mid shot. And then the mayor pulls Brody off to the side closer to the camera. So then it's like a close up. Interesting. And so the way the characters move around kind of changes the shot, the shot. Yeah. And I think Steven Spielberg does a really great job with his cinematography in this movie, not just in that way, but in other ways where like there's one shot like later on the boat, it's looking up at Hooper mm-hmm. and then the camera pans down and now it's a close up of Brody who's lower on mm-hmm. the boat. And like he I love that way of him tying the characters together in space as to where they are. Yeah. While also doing different shots with it, you mm-hmm. know, instead of just like different shots he's splicing together, he does really thoughtful pans and movements and i feel like 
on the boat specifically, you really did have a grasp of like where everything was. Yeah. Which was interesting. Like there's a lot of shots of them like kind of coming out and like walking along the side of the boat, Mm -hmm. like showing how they had to like travel across and like up on the top and things like that. Yeah. But like simple things to make you feel like you have a grasp of like space. Yeah, absolutely. And I think, um, you know, this is something that Spielberg does in a lot of his movies. Uh, this this video I'm talking about references. It references that shot in Jaws, but then other scenes in other movies like Catch Me If You Can and things. Mm-hmm. Uh, but it's like, you know, it's always very intentional and tastefully done. And I don't think Spielberg's cinematography gets talked about a lot. No, it's so, not. It doesn't really strike you but i think once you notice you can appreciate it yeah it's much more subtle but you can tell like it's how effectively it tells the story so i really appreciate that about jaws and his other movies in general so Mm -hmm. yeah just wanted to take a moment (laughs) to appreciate in ian's cinematography corner (laughs) (laughs) but definitely check out our patreon we'll share a link to that video it's so good that youtube uh creator is excellent with his videos mm-hmm. so where are we in the story uh the boy dies <laughs> they're like let's keep the beaches open nothing could possibly go wrong and then immediately <laughs> a boy gets eaten it is really disturbing in the movie yeah it's like really i know the whole scene you know it's gonna happen and like Brody is sitting on the beach in the chair and he's nervous. And this is where we get that like iconic shot where it pans in like it zooms in on him. Yeah. Yeah. Like the camera moves in while zooming out and it gives that weird. Yeah. Which is so funny because it's like an effect someone has never done before. Yeah. And that no one could ever do after. Yeah. Because it became so iconic. It's like, hey, look what I came up with. And everyone's like, great. Now well. we can't do it. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, the, the boys attacked. And I, I something about him, I, I don't know. It just feels so grisly in the movie and like disturbing to watch. Yeah. And also like a dog may have died as well, which is oh, also yeah. sad because the, the guy is looking for the dog what and he can't to find the dog? him. I know. Damn that shark. I know. <laughs> for killing that dog. And the boy. And the boy. And the boy. <laughs> but the dog. Yeah. I mean, we didn't even. The dog died off camera. Yeah. We didn't even get to see that. <laughs> In the book that like an old guy gets eaten, too. Yeah. It's like two attacks at like the same time. And so now. Like. Brody is like feeling horrible. Yeah. Because and, and he was pressured into opening up the beaches again. Mm-hmm. So like in a way it's not really his fault. Yeah. But he still feels responsible for kind of like going along with this plan to open the beaches up again. Yeah. And now like a child has died mm-hmm. and things are like so much more serious. And we know that this just wasn't an isolated event. Yeah. And who knows what could happen. Yeah. Yeah. In the movie we get, this town hall scene where they're talking about closing the beaches and everyone's like upset and talking over each other and trying to be like, we can't close the beaches. It'll be bad for our business. And this is where we're introduced to the character of Quint who <laughs> like scrapes his nails on the chalkboard <laughs> and, and then it's just like, I'll kill the shark for you. Also, he's <laughs> drawn that picture on the chalkboard of, of the like shark, shark eating a person. I'm like, dude, that shark just ate a, a child, child. Like, like can we like yeah tone it down a bit man <laughs> but he's basically like 
give me $10,000 and I'll kill this shark for you. And then everyone's like, yeah, no, we don't have that kind of money. We can't pay you. No, it is a great introduction to his character, though. Oh, yeah. And good to introduce him earlier on because he really doesn't show up again until like the third act. Yes. So it's good to be like. We know who this is. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) Uh, But so the town in the movie, they agree to close the beaches for 24 hours. Yeah. Like that'll be enough. I know the the shark will be like, I'm done. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Yeah. So in the book, though. They close them indefinitely. That's right. Yeah. Yeah. Until they can figure out what to do. And this is where the book goes on one of its side plots involving Ellen. I would say the side the plot. The side plot. Brody's wife. And this is where we meet uh, Matt Hooper. Yes. In the book, um, he is the same. He's like a, a study sharks and comes to like help the town consult on what to do. And Ellen sees him at, like, the hardware store one day and realizes that she used to date his older brother. Yeah, because she's, like, she could kind of recognize it. She could see it in him that, like, oh, are you related to Dave Hooper? Yeah. And so they immediately, like, kind of bond over that. Yeah. And clearly, right off the bat, Matt is reminding her of someone who she used to be. When she was a summer people person? When she was a summer people person. (laughs) When she played people person tennis and, you know, had rich people person parents. Exactly. Polo shirts with the alligators on them. I know. Which is mentioned several times. So she is quickly like, like fanning herself because Matt is a like 28 year old like attractive, tanned oceanographer. Yeah, in like a summer people person class where he's like a little bit more wealthy. Yeah, and so Ellen is immediately like, let's throw a dinner party and invite, what's his name? Matt, I think? Yeah. Matt Hooper? <laughs> and this dinner party scene is <sighs> so nuts because we follow Brody's perspective. And the whole time that he ever mentions the fact that like Ellen is from the summer people. He's always like, oh, like her rich friends are so like snooty and dumb. And she makes this like fancy dinner. And the whole time Brody is like, what the fuck? The soup is cold. Like he acts like (laughs) such a fucking noob. Like he's like, I'm like the most suddenly the most working class man you've ever met who doesn't understand why soup is cold. (laughs) And he's also like, this meat is red. Meat yeah. should always be well done. Meat should always be tough. And he's just drinking a lot and like yeah. making an ass of himself. And meanwhile, Ellen and Matt are like flirting. She's like touching his arm. Hard. Yeah. It's like really aggressively. <laughs> and like, I don't know. The dinner ends. Like thing things end up being fine. But Ellen's pissed at Brody because he was kind of being an ass. Yeah. And he didn't know what cold soup was. <laughs> yeah. And so this solidifies Ellen's plan. She's like my stupid fucking husband. Who doesn't know what cold soup is. <laughs> I'm going to cheat on him. I'm going to cheat on him with this attractive younger man. So she calls him up on the phone and is like, yo, do you want to get lunch, lunch with me? You know? Yeah. There are some scenes that I have to read because they're so ridiculous. I think we should submit them to um, that Twitter. Men, men, right men, wo- men write women. Men write women because it's so bad. And I'm like, do men know how to write anything about women? Do men understand that women are still humans? 
The evidence <laughs> is uh, still out, I think. So I have to read. Ellen is kind of preparing for this lunch date and she's expecting to sleep with Matt. So she's kind of like looking at herself and getting like all sexy. So um, she felt more intensely feminine than she had in years. A warm, wet feeling, both delicious and uncomfortable. What? And I'm like, are you just talking about her getting like horny? Like what? <laughs> what does it mean to be an intensely feminine, warm, wet feeling? Has she not been horny in like 20 years? <laughs> yeah, it's just like a weird way to describe it. And then I'm going to read a little bit more. So she is like kind of getting herself ready and looking at herself in the mirror. Did you want to read about the goods being? No. (laughs) Okay, I'll go. So she says, there was a full length mirror in the bedroom and she stood before it examining herself. Were the goods good enough? Would the offering be accepted? She had work to keep in shape to preserve the smoothness and sinuousness of youth. She could not bear the thought of rejection. The goods were good. (laughs) The lines in her neck were few and barely noticeable. Her face was unblemished and unscarred. There were no droops or sags or pouches. She stood straight and admired the contours of her breasts. This is classic men writing women. (sighs) Women like staring at their boobs and thinking about them. Yeah. Her waist was slim, her belly flat, the reward for endless hours of exercise after each child. The only problem, as she assessed her body critically, was her hips. By no stretch of anyone's imagination were they girlish. They signaled motherhood. They were, as Brody, her husband, once said, breeder's hips. (laughs) (laughs) The recollection brought a quick flash of remorse, but excitement quickly nudged it aside. Her legs were long and, below the pad of fat on her rear, slender. Her ankles were delicate, and her feet, with the toenails neatly pruned, were perfect enough to suit any pedophile. Yeah, what? what does, but it's not pedophile, right? It's pedophile or pedophile, like, yeah. So like someone attracted to feet specifically, right? I don't know. Like a pedicure, like that. It's I don't know. <laughs> I just don't understand any of this, to be honest. Like so much of this um, breeders' hips. Yeah. Well, also she's like they weren't girlish hips. They were so like. Her hips are wide, right? Yeah. Which is like. A sign of like developed bodies. Yeah. Why would you want your hips to be like the hips of a 12 year old? Yeah. I don't understand what she's saying. And also it's one thing to look at the mirror and be like, have I gained weight? Like if you're going to like be flirting with someone and want to bang them to be like questioning your looks like a little bit. Were the goods good enough? The goods were good. The goods were good, Ian. (laughs) (laughs) I just want all you listeners to know that the goods were good. The goods are, in fact, good. That's what every woman thinks when she looks in the mirror. She's like, the goods are good. I want you all to say that to yourself (laughs) every day. Yeah, that should be your morning mantra. Like, put a post-it note on On your your bathroom mirror mirror that says, the goods are good. (laughs) I also just wanted to read this brief little part, because it just, like, really... It, it summarizes how she's feeling and what her motives are. Yeah. Because we're not just, like, reading into a lot of things. She says, um, 
Perhaps the past could never be revived, but perhaps it could be recalled physically as well as mentally. She wanted an injection, a transfusion of the essence of her past, and she saw Matt Hooper as the only possible donor. First of all, is she literally the most self-aware person on the planet Earth? She's like, I have this deep-seated need to connect with my past self because my present self is unfulfilled. I'm like, okay, calm down. Also, she's implying that Matt's going to inject her with it with his dick. (laughs) An infusion, Adina. (laughs) A dick infusion. (laughs) Hey, baby, you want a dick infusion? (laughs) So it's like we get this very uh, overt explanation of what's going as if we couldn't like decipher for ourselves what's going on. Yeah. But it just is like as her character, like. First of all, this aspect of her character basically begins here. Yeah. And this arc for her is like all the center of the of the book. It's like right in the middle. Yeah. And it's all very concentrated. Like suddenly this is like, like there's nothing about the shark at this time at all. Like no. it's only this. Suddenly it's like this sexy affair. Yeah. Story. So she meets with Matt. Yeah. At lunch. And they manage to quickly divert the conversation towards their sexual fantasies. Yeah. And Adina, can I mention right off the bat that her sexual fantasy is to be raped? Yes. Which, at considering the time period that we're in, I know it's only like the 70s, but like, I don't want to get super psychological, but like generally to have a rape fantasy is to imagine, is to try to basically be like, I want to be like sexy and like daring but i can't like get past like the society rules of society mm, yeah so like i have to be forced mm. like i can't be like ex- sexually adventurous on my own like it has to be a situation where like i have to yeah so yeah it's like super problematic but like i can see where that comes from psychologically yeah and i think maybe the weirdness is that first of all like, they still don't know each other that no, well. No, and she's like, mm, I'm imagining when I, like, she's just telling him, she's like, oh, yeah, I try, I imagine someone, like, raping me, and that gets me off. And he's like, oh, really? <laughs> That's fine. Great. Like, he's just totally, like, yeah, like, unflapped, but, like, he does not care about this. Mm-hmm. And he's like, tell me more. Expl- is he black? Yeah. He asks. Yeah. Uh, so this is, I, I just could not wait for this scene to end. Oh, he was so uncomfortable. I just wanted to implode. He starts talking about he wants to be in a threesome. Yeah. Except he calls it. Threesies. Threesies. <laughs> you know, onesies, twosies, and threesies. <laughs> Some nights when I'm home alone, it's a onesie. You know. <laughs> I am hoping we can make this a twosie. But if I'm talking like real, Ideal? like real talk, yeah. it'd be a threesies. <laughs> that killed me. But then they get into talking about like, oh, what would what would the fantasy be if we had sex? And then they just create this elaborate like sexual fantasy of like, oh, and then we would like get a motel. And then and like they don't. The book doesn't describe like the actual sex, really. Not it's all much. of like them fantasizing about it. And then it's Ellen remembering it afterwards. I will. I was happy with that, at least that it's like, OK, we're clearly getting their plan. We don't actually have to see it happen. Yeah. So we didn't actually get much of the actual like sex scene or anything. Mm-hmm. So but yeah, Hooper fucks Ellen and yeah, it's just it's a lot. It's a lot to deal with. And suddenly I'm like, what book? 
am what, I reading Yeah, anymore? what is happening in this book? I This is not really related, but kind of. But I did want to talk about, like, this book's handling of race as well. Yeah. And it's not anything, like, overt. But I don't know. The fact that, like, when she talks about the sexual fantasy, Matt is like, is this rapist black? Yeah. And, like, stuff like that. And then there's, like, a bit in the beginning of the book where it talks about, like, these women being like raped by a black man. Yeah. And it was like the most like quote unquote, like scandalous thing that had happened in, in the, the town. town. Yeah. Was this like uh black gardener had raped like seven women. Yeah. And, and then they had like refused to like go on the record about it, which like, I didn't know if they were implying that like the women were lying and they had just had an affair with this gardener mm. Or if they were implying that nobody takes rape seriously and the women's allegations were not uh, really handled well. I don't really know what it was saying. I mean, either way, <laughs> it's not good. <laughs> it was like real like it, it didn't say enough about it. Like it hardly said anything. to mention it specifically and to be like, oh, it was a black man who like raped these white women. Yeah, I was like, this is a whole other book. Like, I don't know where what yeah. is happening here. Um, and then, like, there's a weird, weird scene where it suddenly, like, cuts to, like, a black family and the little boy going to bed is like, do sharks eat black people? <laughs> and what? I'm just like, what? Yeah, because the book has several weird asides yeah. at the end of chapters. One of the other ones is, like, a young couple sitting on the docks and the kid is like, I got fired from my job, so... I think I'm going to have to start dealing <laughs> like drags his cigarette. And she's like, no, Johnny, you can't. It's too dangerous. And he's like, I can't go back to my father. And then it's like the end. Yeah. <laughs> and I'm like, and what kept, is this? I was thinking, like, are we going to come back to these characters later? Because it does one with Quint. Yeah. Earlier in the book where he's like talking to someone about the shark and everything. And he's like, yeah. This will happen later or whatever. Yeah, they'll call me about it. Yeah, but like these other ones are like totally random people that we never hear from again. And I'm like, no. who the fuck are any of these people and what does this have to do with anything? Yeah, and then there's like at the beginning also they use the uh, a homophobic slur as well. So I just feel like in general the book was like all over the place and problematic. I mean, it's pretty <laughs> typical 70s like writing shit. I Or was it? Was the book 70s or 60s? 70s. 70s. I mean, I'm not trying to, like, write it off by any means. No. Or, like, say it's fine. I'm just saying we have really weird um, writing about women. We have really weird writing about black um, folks as well. And then we have, like, a homophobic slur thrown in there as well. So I'm like, it's kind of hitting all of the bad points. It is. And not to mention, like, Brody's... Uh, drive in this story is like him being emasculated basically yeah because yeah. basically he becomes uh keen to this affair that like probably happened but he doesn't know for sure no he knows that like both ellen and hooper were unaccounted for at the same time on like the same day yeah and so he becomes like obsessed because he saw them together too at dinner and like knows there's like a connection between them yeah so he's like like it's driving him crazy and he's like really like like transfixed on it and not to mention like him being controlled by like the mayor and other people in the town. Yeah. Like the whole story is just like his power being taken away from him. Yeah. And him being made to feel lesser 
and like, is that what the shark means? I don't know. I, I have no clue, but like, it's definitely like a strong theme, whether like intentionally or unintentionally in yeah. this story. Yeah. So, yeah. Anyway, <laughs> in the movie, um, this is where the movie Matt Hooper shows up, who is played by Richard Dreyfus. Um, and in contrast to the book, he's very like exuberant, excited. He and Brody like immediately click and like get along really well. He's very charismatic. He's yes. kind of, and I mean, Richard Dreyfuss is, uh, definitely a comedic actor too. And yeah. a lot of other films. And he brings that like energy to this role, which I really appreciated. Mm-hmm. And we also find out similarly to the book. He comes from like a wealthier family. He was like a summer person. Yeah. And he's an oceanographer now and is like really interested by like the idea of this shark exhibiting this odd behavior. So he wants to both find it and also like study document it. it, study it and like try to do those kinds of things. There's a great scene where he shows up where all the townspeople are and a bunch of other people are trying to hunt the shark because the mother of the boy that died put up a reward for the shark whoever catches it so they're all like trying to find the shark and it's like really crazy Brody is trying to like handle all of this nonsense and this is like kind of an interesting thing about the movie where there's a lot of scenes where people are like talking over each other and a lot is happening at the same time and it feels very chaotic and I feel like it did a good job capturing like the whole vibe of the town and like the political like political stuff going on and um, made you feel that tension really well. Yeah. And this is like so. So a lot of the scenes were improvised. Yeah. And this kind of added to the like the actors didn't quite know what was going on half the time. But they mm-hmm. were given general direction and then had to improvise a lot of the scenes. Wow. And it's cool, too, because a lot of the actors and extras in the film, uh, the, the movie was filmed on a vineyard. Mm hmm. Or in that area of a vineyard. And a lot of the extras and actors were locals. Wow. So, like, the guy with the girl at the beginning of the movie was a local kid mm-hmm. who was cast. Uh, the Mrs. Kittner, the mother of the dead child, yeah. was a local actress. Wow. Like, a lot of the actors came from that area. And it's funny because, like, a lot of them... Because the movie is so popular now, a lot of them kind of have this, like, fame. <laughs> it's like in Star Wars. Yes. A lot of the Star the Wars actors were, like, nobodies, but, mm-hmm. like, now they have one line. Yeah. Like, there's this one guy on the dock who, when Hooper explains that it was, like, a tiger shark, yeah. he goes, a what? <laughs> and now he's, like, famous for having said that. Oh, my God. So I, th- I think that's really cool, though. And I think it's, like, something very unique to Stephen King. Stephen King's? <laughs> Jesus Christ. Steven Spielberg's filmography. Yeah. Because this does have a very improvised energy to it. That it I does. Don't, I don't, I don't know his filmography that well, but like feels unique to this movie. Like I don't feel like there's a lot of his movies that feel this way. Yeah. But I really like it. Mm-hmm. It is interesting. And they do catch a shark. Yes. Um, but there's some debate on whether it is the shark. We have a great scene with the mother of the dead boy, Mrs. Kittner. Yeah. Where she confronts Brody and basically blames him for the death of her son. And it's really intense, but she was really good. She was. She had, she slaps him in the movie. Yeah. And apparently they had to do a lot of takes of that. (laughs) (laughs) So that was interesting. Uh, But yeah, it really gives, it adds to the complexity of what Brody's going through. Yeah. In terms of like, he is kind of seen as the figure of authority, but yeah. he's not. Yeah. He, like, the mayor and the um, 
councilmen have power over him. Yeah. So he's both trying to like take control of the situation while also not knowing what to do mm-hmm. and receiving like all of the blame for what's going on. Yeah. And I think the book addresses this really well too. It does. Yeah. It, it's a really interesting um, theme that is going on with like how do you handle this and like how is he like where does his blame lie you know for Mm -hmm. letting things happen or not happen so i think a lot of this culminates really well especially in this scene with mrs kittner so the movie introduces this other wacky subplot um or i'm sorry the movie the book introduces a (laughs) wacky subplot where there's this like mafia angle where as if we didn't need enough motivation from the mayor and like the council folk on why they wanted the beaches to be open, but yeah. there has to be like this other angle where you find out that the mayor has like mafia ties and like his wife was sick in the hospital and they had like all this, like all these bills. And then someone like gave him a loan and then he tries to like pay back the loan later and they won't let him. And then he's like up to like in debt for like real estate. And then the real estate value is going to like go down because of the beaches not being open and the mafia are like, it's crazy, honestly. Yeah. Like you said, obviously the movie dropped this plot line. Yeah. Cause it's like, they still had enough motivation. Yeah, to why do you need open. it? And yeah. like the mayor isn't an interesting character. No, he's just like a dick the whole time. He is. Yeah. So it's like, why? I, I, I don't get it. It's totally unnecessary and like, but eats up a large chunk oh, yeah. of the book too about like, who are his partners. business partners? Yeah. We should investigate. And then the newspaper guy is just like, uh, yeah, I found out. Yeah. So it's just like, okay, great. And then um, Brody goes home and his wife is a frantic because some guy strangled their cat in front of his child. In broad daylight. Yeah. And like left it on their in their yard. It's like the cat. That, Suddenly the stakes are very high. Yeah. The cat that we've has, never met. Yeah. How, did Was it mentioned once? I don't believe so. I don't think so. I don't I don't personally know this cat. <laughs> <laughs> I just made a note like. Oh, we know Brody has a cat because now it's dead. Yeah. (laughs) And so Brody takes the dead cat over to the mayor's house and like throws it at him. And he's like, this is what you've brought to my family. You fuck. Uh, It's just like (laughs) so much added drama for no reason. Yeah. The The author is like, you know, it'd be interesting if the mafia was in this story. I know. The book is very pulpy. It is. In a lot of ways. And not that there's anything wrong with that specifically no but i do think you see a lot of unnecessary additional drama and tension like with the affair yeah it's like mafia angle i'm and like so isn't the shark enough honestly yeah like, is the shark not enough for you yeah be <laughs> grateful for what you have <laughs> exactly uh meanwhile in the movie uh Hooper does not believe this is the right shark. Yeah. And he thinks that if they cut open the shark and look at its insides. They will not find the body of a child and we'll just find like fish. I don't know. Yeah. And we we do get a great scene. First of all, we get a great scene where Brody's at home. Yeah. And he's sitting at the table with his kid. Yeah. And they do this like he realizes his kid is like imitating everything he does. And they have this little back and forth. It's sweet. It is. And that was actually improvised. Really? Uh, They were sitting between takes at the table and the actor playing Brody noticed the kid was doing what he did. 
And he was like, Steven, like, look at this. And like, they did it. And he was like, that's great. Let's film that. And so they did it and added it wow. to the scene. It's just it's a great little moment. It's a human moment for Brody's character. It is. And his connection with his family. And mm-hmm. like, I really loved that, that yeah. little part. And Hooper comes over and brings wine and they're like talking and kind of shooting the shit. And I think this is good for Brody and Hooper's relationship. Like you see their camaraderie as well. Yeah, which I'm like, good. I'm like, I'm glad that they have a connection and they like each other and that instead of being sexual rivals (laughs) Brody doesn't want to murder Hooper yeah you know I I like that they have that Mm -hmm. so they go they cut the shark open they find nothing and so they're like well that confirms that this isn't the shark yeah and And then they go out into the water they're like all right let's find the shark we're a little drunk let's do it (laughs) (laughs) and they talk more this is where Brody finds out Hooper is kind of from a rich family and we find out Brody Wants to make a difference with his job. Yeah. So I just a lot of good character building. Yeah. And this is why it annoys me that people ever considered this like a mindless blockbuster. Because like it does take its character seriously. Yeah. And we find out more, too, about Brody being afraid of the water. Yeah. And um, he him kind of facing that a little bit going on the boat with Hooper. Mm-hmm. So Hooper goes. They find an abandoned boat from a fisherman. That Brody knows they investigate Hooper dives into the water and we get one of like the the big jump scares of the movie where yes. the fisherman's dead fl- floating head comes out of the hole in the boat. Yeah. And fun fact, they didn't actually film that on location. They filmed it afterwards in a uh, in a swimming pool. Wow. <laughs> that actual insert shot of the head. Oh, my gosh. And. Because he loved, when they did test screenings, Spielberg loved the jump scare when the shark first comes out of the water and oh, the audience's yeah. reaction. He's, and like, he's like, more yeah, of that. Yeah, he's like, more of that. <laughs> he's like, let's go to a, what, does anyone have a swimming pool? All right, let's do this. <laughs> Make and a of, head. And of course, we get the first instance of Hooper dropping shit when he's startled because he drops the tooth. <laughs> fucking, comes back later. Fucking butterfingers. I know. So... This confirms that the shark is still out there. Mm-hmm. And later they have this confrontation with the mayor where they're like, we have to keep the beaches closed. Like, yeah. if we open for Fourth of July, it's going to be like a feeding frenzy. Mm-hmm. And this is one of the scenes where it's like a lot of talking over each other and yeah. like improvise, but it's like really well done. And the mayor won't do it, but he does allow them to have like police on the beaches. Mm-hmm. And in the book, something kind of similar happens where Brody is basically pressured to keep the beach is open, but to have like police there to hopefully like, you know, shoot the shark if it shows up. I don't know. Like, what are the police going to do? Also in the book, a lot of people start showing up, or at least it's implied a lot of people start showing up to see the shark. Yeah. And I'm like, do people know no, where sharks, sharks are, live? They're in the water and like, you can't see them unless like you're inside of one, basically. Yeah. It was just very odd. I'm like, ah, that doesn't really uh, ring true to me that people would do that. But I don't know. Yeah. In the book, this scene um, when the beaches are open, there's like no one is swimming at all in the book. And then one boy gets dared by his friends to swim. And so he goes out there and everyone's like watching him. He's like, this is fine. And then they immediately see like a fin approaching and they're like, get out of the water, get out of the water, get out of the water. (laughs) They get him out of the water and he's safe. But then they're like, okay, clearly the shark is not gone. Yeah. Uh, So that's kind of like the truthful, you know, moment of the shark not being gone. The movie, it's 4th of July weekend. The beach is packed. Yeah. And eventually people start going out into the water and then 
and there's a whole lineup of uh, boats patrolling. Yeah. And suddenly a fin comes out of the water mm-hmm. and approaching the crowd of people. And it when someone spots it, it turns into a stampede. Yeah. And I thought this scene was filmed really well. Mm-hmm. Like the the frenzy of people like rushing out of the water. Some people are getting like trampled over. Like mm-hmm. it's kind of hysteria. And then you find out that it's just like two boys playing a prank. <laughs> I did love this. Yeah. Like two fucking stupid kids would do this, like not knowing like what they were causing. Yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. So. But the fake shark was actually to detract from the real shark mm-hmm. that was coming up on the side. And Brody's son actually almost gets eaten. And he witnesses a guy actually get eaten for yeah. real. Yeah. And he like goes into shock because of it. Mm-hmm. And this is when the shark has made it personal. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> and this is where Brody finally convinces the mayor like, hey, we have to close the beaches for good and we have to pay that guy to get rid of the shark. Otherwise, like everyone's fucked. You know that crazy lunatic? <laughs> Let's give him $10,000. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> <laughs> so... This all leads us into the kind of not the most memorable portion of the movie, but slash basically, but kind of like when I think of Jaws, I think of the parts on the boat more specifically. Yeah. And I think it's very odd the way the movie is structured, because I think it is like if you're talking about like story breakdown, it is the third act. Yeah. You know, Brody suddenly has this like motivation Mm -hmm. after his son has been attacked to like, okay, we have to do this thing. Yeah. And to overcome his fear and to go on the boat with him. Yeah. yeah. But the like third act is actually like half the movie almost. Yeah. So it's like very oddly structured in that way. And in the book, it's like the opposite. In the book, like all the portions on the boat are only the last like maybe fourth of the book. Yeah. A very small portion. So like more of a true third act. Yeah. I feel like if this movie were made today... They would either make the boats, the boat portion, like the second and third act. Yeah. You know, like after the initial attacks, he's like, we have to hunt this thing. And then it's like the whole second and third act or lean more into the on land stuff. And then it's like more of a tight third act. Mm -hmm. But I really do love. I mean, I I love both the first and second half of this movie. Like both have like really interesting aspects to them iconic moments but it does feel like kind of a large shift yeah it in does. the story mm-hmm. like suddenly all the stuff on land is kind of like all right forget about that a little bit yeah <laughs> and then it's this story about like three men isolated on a boat and yes. hunting this like you know animal that like represents different things and it's like a very different story in a way yeah it is kind of like two different stories in the book, they come back to shore every night, and it's, everything takes place over the span of, like, four days, this whole shark hunt. In the movie, it's clear that they are staying on the boat till they find the fucking shark. Yeah, it's like, we're not going anywhere. Yeah. There's no beds. There's, like, no food. Yeah. We only have beer to live off. Deal with it. <laughs> I mean, the movie, it does make more sense, or the book, I'm sorry. It does make more sense that they'd go in every night. Yeah. And there is there are interesting aspects because of this where when a certain character dies, yeah. like they go back to land and they have to deal with it. Mm-hmm. And at one point, Brody, uh, Brody's wife, Ellen, challenges him about what's going on and is yeah. like, listen, 
you're this is crazy like i yeah, know you you're feel, on a suicide mission yeah i know you feel responsible but it's actually selfish what you're doing yeah because you're putting yourself in danger and your family in danger because of that mm-hmm. so i did like getting those moments because it felt it helped tie the shark hunting yes. in with the town and everything else. Whereas the movie, they feel very separate. In the book, they're a little more intertwined because of that. Yeah. But the movie's super effective in making them feel isolated. Yes. Like when they're out on the and boat. And desperate. Yeah. It feels like they're in the middle of the ocean, even though they're not that far offshore. Yeah. And it just like forces these three very interesting characters together mm-hmm. in a great way. The book has a lot of tension, obviously, between Hooper and Brody, mm-hmm. because Brody is still like obsessed with trying to figure out if his <laughs> wife and Hooper banged or not. Yeah. And Hooper at one point basically lets it like he he kind of says that he kind of did. Yeah, yeah almost. Uh, and at one point, Brody is so pissed at him. He like reaches for his gun that he yeah. doesn't have, luckily. Mm-hmm. But he's like, wow, I almost shot a man. <laughs> Toxic masculinity in a nutshell. Yeah. And another part, he like is actually actively strangling Hooper. <laughs> yeah. Like, he almost like strangles him to death. And then he finally like lets go and is like, okay. <laughs> <laughs> okay, I guess. <laughs> but the tensions on the boat in the movie are more between Quint and Hooper. Yeah. Although there's interesting, there's like an interesting dynamic between all of them that I really like. Yeah. Quint in an earlier scene is kind of like shitting on Hooper. Yeah. Because Hooper does know boats, but... He's, he's a noob. He hates the water. He, but yeah, but Quint is like still challenging him. Like, tie this knot and like, oh, your hands are soft. And like... Yeah. And I love Hooper gives this line, I don't need this working class hero bullshit. Yeah. <laughs> which I loved. Yeah. Uh, but, but still, Quint and Hooper do have more of the nautical expertise, which Brody is a total... Yes. Uh, like totally out of that element, yeah. Which separates him from them, and then Quentin Brody feel a little connected, just being like people on the island, yeah. And Hooper being like, "Oh, I know science, but this is kind of almost like beyond science." Mm-hmm. And then obviously, Quint is insane, yes. <laughs> and Hooper and Brody <laughs> are like, not. Mm, yeah, there is a lot of interesting tension. I feel like most of it, though, is sort of between Quint and Hooper and the whole, like, rich kid college boy thinks he knows stuff about sharks, and I've been on the seas for a long-ass <laughs> time, so... Yeah, but I do love this dynamic. I mean, I love this kind of story, like, three interesting characters, and, like, let's put them all together in a tight space yeah. and send them out to the middle of the ocean. See what happens. Also, there's a shark. <laughs> yeah. Uh, the movie, we also get this really great scene of them finally bonding together. Yes. It's like night and they're in like the little cabin portion because they don't have any beds apparently. <laughs> and they're just drinking and talking. And at first, uh, Hooper and Quint are comparing scars. <laughs> I thought you were going to say dicks. <laughs> oh no, scars. A little bit though. Yeah, it's it's basically that. But they're like showing off all the scars they've had throughout life. There's a really funny line Um where Hooper points to his chest and says that... Um, like Sally... Yeah, somebody like hurt him, broke his heart, <laughs> which was funny. It's really great. I like seeing them like finally like joining together a little bit. Yeah. And then we get the very, very famous monologue from Quint. Yes. About 
the actual totally real. This is a real story. USS Indianapolis. And what's interesting was the story of what happened on this boat was actually declassified between when the book was written and when the movie came out. Wow. So the author like didn't know about it. And people were like, he probably would have included it if he had. Mm -hmm. But the screenwriter was like, we have to have this in here. Yeah. And so Quint gives the whole story that he himself was on the Indianapolis and the ship sinking from torpedoes and then the shark frenzy and the shark feeding and how so many, so few people got out. Mm -hmm. And I've heard different accounts of this, but uh, the actor who played Quint, I can't remember his name, uh, was a heavy drinker Mm -hmm. and he was drinking a lot on the set of this movie. (laughs) That seems in character. (laughs) I know, right? Like half the shit he says you can't even understand. No. But I read that he, the first time he did this monologue, he was like plastered. Really? And I read that at one point it was unusable and that they didn't use any of it or that they wanted to give it another go. So he did it when he was sober. And I read that. One version says the sober version was the final cut, and another says it was actually a combination of him being drunk and sober in the final cut. I don't know which it is. Yeah. If you know. Please let us know. Let us know. (laughs) But I've heard either from, like, different sources. But uh, it's just, it's such, and also, the actor who played Quint whittled down this monologue from, like, ten pages to, like, what it is in the movie, he was like, I can't read all of this. Yeah. So he like reworked it and kind of just like ad-libbed parts and kind of like made it his own. Wow. Which I think is really cool. So it's just iconic and it's so good. It is. It's really good. And then they have this part where they all start singing together mm-hmm. and like pounding on the on the table, <laughs> which is great. And then they almost don't hear the shark because of it. Yes. The shark attacks the boat now. He starts ramming it. And when they come outside, it's now like sunrise it's dawn yeah and this like really begins uh i think they've seen the shark already we get yeah, that jump had, scare yeah when mm-hmm. brody's chumming the water and he gives the line about we need a bigger boat yes which was also improvised nice so but that is a startling scene where he's just like putting this shit in the water <laughs> and then all of a sudden the shark comes out and you're like ah <laughs> <laughs> it's like so well framed where like there's a space for the shark yeah. but you don't actually like are you're not really thinking about it no because it's just where he's chumming yeah so it's like super effective thus begins the part in the story where they're chasing the shark yeah they manage to harpoon it a couple times and this is more in the movie that they harpoon the shark early on and get some barrels attached to it yeah and once again this is out of necessity i i read that like basically every shot of the shark in the movie that was like all of the usable footage they had (laughs) oh god like literally every shot that made it was like what they had wow so like the scenes where they're chasing it it's just like the barrels being dragged which like makes so much sense that it's like let's just get the barrels in him and so then, we know where it is yeah and we'll film the barrels yeah and plus it adds this great tension of like when he submerges with three barrels attached and it's like holy shit yeah this is a huge ass shark yeah and there's that great oh i love it when he dives under the water and the music just like peters out yeah and there's just this like vacant long like hold on the frame after it goes under yeah and then the other the characters looking at each other like, oh, my God. Yeah, there's this interesting kind of fun style <laughs> to, like, the movie when they're, like, hunting the shark. Like, it's kind of, like, 
chaotic and frenetic paced and like the music is like like everyone's like yeah we're like on an adventure it's like real jaunty yes all of a sudden jaunty is a good word <laughs> and then it does go back into the horror but like it's it's kind of funny that like balance there it is it's like odd and once again like i feel like if this was made today they'd lean much more into the like this is horror yeah and this is scary yeah but the movie breaks that at different points to be like more fun yeah and like swashbuckling like adventurous yeah which i think works and mostly because of john williams score yes does such a good job in both moments so in a lot of stuff happens with like fighting the shark and harpooning it and blah 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 But basically, it does all come down to a point in both the book and the movie where they're like, this isn't working. And Hooper decides to go into the cage. The cage! Put him in the cage! (laughs) (laughs) So Hooper gets all scuba'd up and they drop the cage in the water and he goes in. Yes. And obviously this scene is super iconic. Yes. Where... The shark is just like, fuck this cage and just starts bashing it. And Hooper in the movie, again, Butterfingers drops the gun. (laughs) I was like, you had one job. Like, come on. I know. (laughs) And also like in the book, too, he has a similar device that he like just can't reach or something. Yeah. But the, the, the cage is just getting torn apart. Yeah. In the movie. He manages to weasel out of it because yeah, the shark gets out the top. The shark kind of gets like caught up in the cage, and he like swims like down and mm-hmm. into like some rocks to hide. Yeah, he's like, ah, I'm just, just gonna, gonna go down, down here. here. Yeah, and the book. Yeah, the not book. not so lucky for Hooper. Uh, so the shark is kind of breaking through the cage, and Hooper's trying to like reach for the gun or anything. And in the book, he's like, there's this like realization that like the shark is gonna like reach him. And then the shark just like bites into him and he dies. Yeah. And like the, his last like thing he sees is are like the dead eyes of the shark. Oh, God. Yeah. yeah. There's kind of an interesting like the book really at this point. It's funny. The early parts are so much about class and all that stuff. Yeah. The later parts are so much more about like nature and man's relationship with nature. Yeah. Which is interesting because Quint is very not cynical, but, like, he has this, like, dead dolphin yes. fetus. Oh, my God. It's so weird. But he's going to use it as in the bait. Book. Yeah, yeah, in the book. He's going to use it as bait. And Hooper starts getting angry about it. He's like, those are endangered. You shouldn't use it. Yeah. And Quint's like, fuck it. Like, those laws are for, like, big companies or big corporations to not kill all of them. Like, yeah. one doesn't make a difference. And, like, so Hooper does have, like, a respect for nature in one way. Mm-hmm. And, like, an admiration for it. But on the other hand, like, underestimates nature. In yeah, because yeah. when he's in the cage, there's a moment where the shark passes and he just, like, touches it and yeah. is, like, revering it. Yeah, he has, he's, has like, this state of wonder at nature. Yeah, and then gets fucking eaten because of it. Yeah. Whereas Quint, like, underestimates nature. Yeah. They kind of have, like, the opposite problems almost. Quint is, like, it's a dumb, stupid shark. It's a dumb fish. Yeah. And as the story goes on, it's more like, is it? Yeah. You know, is it as dumb as he thinks it is? And like underestimating it and Mm -hmm. like kind of leads to his death. Yeah. So I I do think those aspects are interesting. Yeah. But by this point in the story, it's like. 
it is kind of too late. You're like, yeah. they haven't really talked about this at all in the rest of the story. <laughs> yeah, like, I'm all for this. I think it's super interesting. But, like, you're dropping your, like, sociopolitical, like, class uh, themes. Yeah. And now you're taking up this, like, Man nature. Man versus nature. Yeah. And, like, not really saying enough about either in my yeah. mind. Yeah. So. I agree with you. Uh, so, Hooper is dead in the book. <laughs> <laughs> Hooper is alive in the movie. Um, but they think he's dead. But they think he's dead. And this is when the shark, like, kind of just, like, uh, launches itself at the boat. <laughs> <laughs> it works, yeah. honestly. But, like, whenever I think about it in my head, it's funny. I know. Like, just this, like, shark, like, like and then, like, belly flopping onto the boat. I know. And, uh, yeah, this is when uh, Quint goes down. <sighs> in the movie, it's pretty violent. This movie is rated PG. Mm-hmm. And we literally see like the shark bite down on his body and then like the blood like come out of his mouth as he like dies. And, and he's I'm, like, like stabbing it. Yeah. And- I'm like, God damn. Like it is really graphic, honestly. It is. And like for is like in one way silly as the shark looks like it's so you're like in it. You're like, yeah. This oh, is, you believe it. Yeah, for real. Mm-hmm. And I think this was before the time when PG-13 was a rating, I believe. Yeah, yeah so, which it has is, to be. Which makes sense why we it would saw be. We saw like a full boob earlier, so. Yeah, full boobage. Yeah, it was underwater, but we still saw it. Oh, yeah, they were silhouetted. I yeah. saw the n- nipple silhouettes. <laughs> <laughs> but it, it, it's like a very brutal death. And then it's just Brody on a sinking boat yes. in the ocean with this shark. Yes. He manages to get an oxygen tank into the mouth of the shark. I loved this part when he goes back in the cabin and the shark immediately like, <laughs> like comes through the, the side. Yeah. Because it's just like so relentless. Yeah. He doesn't get a fucking break. No. And so. Literally at, the ship yeah. is sinking. He's on like the top. I don't know ships. He's on like the top pointy part of the ship. <laughs> the, and, the mast. Yes. I mean, course. it's kind of the mast. Yeah. Um, And then he's like, all right, I got to shoot. The oxygen tank. And they have established the oxygen tanks before that they could explode. It does a lot of good um, setup for different things, like talking about the oxygen tank exploding and yeah. like different. It does a lot of good setup like that. Mm-hmm. And I just love this situation at the end. It's such a good, like, hanging by the skin of his, like, yeah, or, like literally by his fingernails. Onto, like, what is left of the ship. I know. Like, at this, he's like, slumped on this mast angled like with the gun shooting at the shark as it's like swimming for him in the final approach it's so exciting and well done with the music yeah it's just top notch it's so good and then he finally hits the tank and the shark explodes which is great yes um and this is when um hooper is like all right you finished it i can come up now i did nothing (laughs) (laughs) surprise i'm alive and they do um end up swimming back to shore on like the barrels and everything. So they make it. The book's ending, the shark just like kind of gets tired and stops. Well, so at this point, they've managed to get some harpoons in it. Yeah. And so it's like bleeding. And a similar thing happens where the shark like flops onto the boat. Yeah. Quint manages to stab it some a few times in the gut. Yeah. But when the shark gets off like one of the ropes tangles around Quint's foot yes, and, and pulls him under. overboard mm-hmm. and under which annoyed me because like 
I'm like, okay, this book is already very similar to Moby Dick in a lot of ways. Yeah. And this is like exactly how Captain Ahab died (laughs) was being like caught in the ropes and dragged under. I'm like, I think this is too strong of an allusion to Moby Dick. Mm -hmm. Uh, But that's how Quint dies in the book. And then Brody, the ship sinks and Brody is just on like a tiny like life uh, jacket thing. It's like a seat cushion. Yeah. And the shark is coming towards him and then just stops. And actually... I was confused when I first read the book. I thought that the shark just like decided to swim away. <laughs> like it wasn't clear. And I don't know. I just wasn't. Maybe I was just excited to finish the book. Um, but the shark actually dies. It's just like it's not super explicit with that. No, and I, I can't. I knew from what I'd read that the shark died at the end. Yeah. So I didn't feel like I was confused about that. But that's I already had that information. Or, you know, at least that's how it was explained to me. So, yeah, but so the book ends like right there. It's similar to the movie in that, like, shark's dead. I'm swimming back home. Yeah. But for some reason in the book, it just feels so much more abrupt. It did feel really abrupt. And then Brody's like, all right, got to go home. And then that's it. Like the final confrontations happening. I'm like, there's two pages left. Yeah. <laughs> I'm like, I'm like how, how is this going to wrap up? I mean, at least in the movie, we get some like comedic, like talking between the two at the end. Mm-hmm. And then we see at the credits that they made it to shore. You know what I mean? Like I do. It's not that I feel in the movie that it wraps up too quickly. Like, but I also don't know if I've just accepted the story for what it is. You know what I mean? I'm yeah. like, is this too quick and tidy of a wrap up? Because like we said, it really does drop a lot of the tension and themes that were going on earlier in the story. Yes. With like the town and like Brody's role as police chief and his responsibilities. And mm-hmm. by the end of the movie, it's just like he killed the shark and that's all that this was about. Yeah. And it does work i think Mm -hmm. but part of me is like could we have used maybe like some closing scenes i don't know maybe yeah i do respect to to, like just finishing it and being like this is where it ends you know what i mean i don't (laughs) know yeah yeah it's it's hard to say because i mean the movie ends on such a an explosive (laughs) conclusion yes exactly (laughs) that it's like maybe we should just like throw in our hand here and like let it go yeah it's hard to say so which one is better you know this may shock people (laughs) i don't know i don't know how coy we've played it this entire (laughs) time but i'm gonna say the movie i'm gonna say the movie as well um the book isn't bad honestly um it's interesting but i just was trying to do too much at once yeah and so it didn't do any of them super well I completely agree. It was like it had interesting aspects to it, minus the Ellen affair. Yeah. Portions. <laughs> but I don't know. Ultimately, it amounted to a lot of nothing. Yeah. And it was like they could have been. And and especially for how short it is. I know. I'm like, this could have been a little bit longer, at least to conclude a lot of these arcs. Or like less arcs, because it's not that much book. Like, <laughs> Yeah, yeah. E- either or. Uh, but the movie, obviously, is so iconic. It holds a special place in cinema history. It's really funny, honestly. It's I know. It balances a tone so well from like horror to adventure to humor and 
like family drama and like it really does such a great job of combining all these elements like really effectively absolutely uh yeah, so I, I think it's a solid movie from both of us. I think it's movie. All right, let me read um, Angie's review. So she wrote, um, I may be a little biased because I've seen the movie dozens of times and only read the book once, but to me, Jaws the movie is so much better than Jaws the book. The book left so little impact on me that I only remember a few details from it. Something with the mafia, Ellen Brody's ridiculous affair with Matt Hooper, and Quint's gross dolphin fetus. (laughs) I remember so little about the shark that I can only recall him eating one person. To me, the storyline of the book was too complicated and boring. None of the characters were very likable. And by the end, I was rooting for the shark. With a title like Jaws, I was definitely expecting more of a thriller. Instead, it felt more like a soap opera with a few appearance of the shark. As for the film, it amazes me how uh, Spielberg was able to make such an iconic movie when it was such a nightmare to make. The characters are much more likable in the film, and it didn't need any complicated storylines about the mafia or an affair. Um, So she said, uh, for me, the movie is clearly the superior of the two. As for the book, to quote Hooper from the movie, I can't take this abuse much longer. (laughs) (laughs) I think that's all very, very well said and that we would agree with, like, all of it. (laughs) Yeah. Should we do lightning round? Let's do lightning. All right. So first up for lightning round, I just have to read more of this terrible dialogue and like descriptions about women in general. But um, this is after Ellen has fucked Hooper and she is now in the bedroom with her husband. So Ellen heard him flip up the toilet seat, her husband, and begin to urinate a loud, powerful, steady stream that went on and on and on. She smiled. Until today, she had assumed Brody was some kind of urinary freak. He could go for almost a day without urinating. Then, when he did pee, he seemed to pee forever. Long ago, she had concluded that his bladder was the size of a watermelon. Now she knew that huge bladder capacity was simply a male trait. Now, she said to herself, I am a woman of the world. (laughs) I I mean, like, I... Can't. <laughs> you just can't. <laughs> that line was so absurd and ridiculous. I don't even think I registered it when I first read it. Yeah. Because you were like, did you read that thing about her being a woman of the world? I'm like, what? No. And then when you read it, I'm like, oh, my God. <laughs> yeah. I'm like, um, women don't think about you peeing. Like, this is clearly the author being like, oh, I can like pee real hard. Also, Brody. <laughs> You're dehydrated. <laughs> Drink <laughs> like, some goddamn water. That's not a thing that should ever happen to anyone is that you go all day without peeing. Yeah, that's not healthy. Uh, <laughs> so another interesting funny movie factoid was that Steven Spielberg, the last shot they filmed or one of the very last shots they filmed was the shark exploding. Uh-huh. Because they actually blew up like one of the um, the rubber doll or, you know, mechanical sharks. And Steven Spielberg fucking bounced and left before they shot that. Really? Because apparently, I mean, they had been there shooting for forever. Mm -hmm. And he was like so convinced that like everyone wanted him dead (laughs) or that they were going to like pull some shit on him that he's like, I'm just going to leave now. And he's like, I trust all of you (laughs) to handle this, to handle this and film it correctly. Oh, my God. And I guess he ran into someone like in L.A. and they were like. Oh, how'd the shark blowing up scene go? He's like, oh, they're doing it now. And they're like, what? Why aren't you there? But you're here. And he's like. And I guess now it's like a thing he does all the time. He like isn't around for the last few scenes of the movie that are shot. Huh. I don't know how accurate that is. Yeah. But that's like a superstitious thing. Yeah, I don't know. But 
Yeah. So next for the book is more of the, the just crazy lines that are in this book. So the author uses really weird word choices sometimes. I'm just going to read another portion. Bear with me. So this is talking about Ellen in her nightgown. Her nightgown was cut so deeply in the front that both of her breasts were visible, all but the nipples, and was so diaphanous that Brody was sure he could actually see the dark flesh of the nipples. When he returned from the bathroom, he was tumescent. <laughs> it's like, why? Like, most of the rest of the book... Was n- normal. It's like he pulled a thesaurus out, and he's like, I, yeah. gotta, I gotta spice this up a little bit. <laughs> There's also another part where uh, Ellen was talking to uh, Hooper about getting drunk. Yeah. Ellen nodded. I know the feeling. I tend to get sort of impetuous. So do I. Really? I can't imagine you getting impetuous. I thought scientists weren't ever impetuous. Like, stop saying impetuous. Do you know what it means? <laughs> Do you think she didn't know what that word meant and was like, you impetuous? What I can't imagine you being impetuous. Mean? Like, what? What, is, what does that even mean? Uh, final lightning round. This was like so I, I watched like a an hour documentary about the making of Jaws. Yeah. So for the scenes when Hooper's in the cage, what they wanted to do, they they do in the final cut of this movie, work in some real footage of sharks, Mm -hmm. which makes sense because there's no scale in a lot of the shots to compare it to. But in some of the shots where there is, what they did was, so the whole plan was they hired um, a little person (laughs) and put him in a smaller cage and we're going to, like, lower them into shark-infested waters and get footage. Oh, my God. So the shark appeared larger. <laughs> but after going through all this work, they realized that the miniaturized, because a, a small person still breathes the same amount, essentially. Yeah. And because the tanks were miniaturized. Oh, my God. He only had, like, eight minutes of oxygen. Oh, my God. And the day of the shooting, they got really... Like, he was getting really nervous, and they're like, all right, get in the cage. And he's like, okay. And he's kind of, like, <laughs> dragging his feet a little bit. Uh. And the cage is in the water, and right when he was about to get in it, a shark launched itself on top of the cage <gasps> and got, like, stuck and was thrashing around. <laughs> and the person in the wetsuit actually got hit with the tail Oh, a my bit God. And was, like, fine. But, like, the whole thing was this crazy – and, like, they were – and the, the I think the cage sank, and they were like, if he was in there, he would have died. Oh, my God. And he's like, I'm not going to do this. <laughs> Just kidding. <laughs> but I really wonder if those were the shots used in the movie when the shark is on the cage uh, and, like, yeah. stuck and thrashing around. Because I remember watching that thinking, like, how did they, like, do this, do this or train the shark to do this or capture this moment – and I think that was probably that moment. Oh, my God. That's crazy. But I'm just like, oh, my God. Like, you're like, how did they how did they put a, together a movie? Yeah. That was even halfway decent, given like all the complications <laughs> and all the mistakes and like everything that happened. Wow. <laughs> that's so cool. So that's the end of lightning round. Yep. That's the end of the episode, too. We were really excited to do this one. Thanks again to Angie for uh, suggesting it. And yeah, if you like this, uh, you can follow us on line, on the line, (laughs) online. You know, we're on Facebook. uh, We're on Instagram. You can also follow us on Twitter at Cover2Credits. Mm -mm. 
Well, well, yes. Uh, sorry, <laughs> I shouldn't have cut you off too early. <laughs> Big news: We finally got the Twitter handle just regular cover, cover two, two credits. T O T O. There's no number two. Yes. It's done. We, we still, stole it. We stole. <laughs> <laughs> we still have it with the number two though. Yeah. So if anyone does go to that account, they can uh, still find us. There's just a forward to the regular one now, yeah. and everyone will be cut, like transferred over, but. We have it. We finally got it. Yes. The regular Twitter handles. It's so great. It's exciting. Find us there. Find us on Instagram, Facebook. Also on Patreon. Yes. Uh, if you want to become a patron, we have bonus episodes. Yes. Called After Credits, where if a movie has another adaptation, we'll talk about it. We just did an episode on the 1994 version of Little Women. Yes. Uh, as well as the Watchmen television show. We mm-hmm. had a 2019 recap episode so mm-hmm. we're pretty active on patreon we also have monthly schedules for the upcoming episodes and if you are a patron you get priority uh recommendations for episodes yeah so all of that and more if, on the wonderful world of patreon yes yeah, so if you're a fan of the podcast please consider contributing and supporting the podcast and if you can't do that uh, leaving us a star rating on Apple Podcasts is also a huge help. Yes, that really helps us. And thank you to all of our patrons who contribute to us. And thank you to everyone who listens. Uh, you make it all worthwhile. You do. And we'll see you next time. See you next time. Bye. Bye.